and we can get started. Father, we're glad to be here this morning. Uh, would we hear your voice? And Lord, if you speak to us, would we not harden our hearts, but listen softly to it? So would you give us ears to hear and uh, set our hearts in alignment with what you have to say to us? In your name we pray. Amen. Last several weeks, we've been in a new series. It's called Questions Jesus Asked. And Jesus was an excellent teacher. We oftentimes don't think about him as a teacher in the way that we think about teachers today, but Christ was the best teacher to ever live. And one of his primary teaching methods was through asking questions. And so oftentimes when he would be asked questions, he would respond with a question, or when something would be going on, he would ask a question and call the listener to deliberate over what he had asked. We're going to get to another question we have this morning, but before we do that, I do have a question for you to start our time. I have a question for you. So if I were to ask you, who do you think the greatest living person in America is today? What would your answer be? The greatest living person in America today. I asked the internet this question earlier this week, and I got an article that had the top 20 greatest living Americans in 2024. And it was entertaining to go through and to look at this article. So here was number one on the list, and if you answered this, congratulations. Number one on the list for the greatest living Americans or people in America today, Rihanna. Rihanna. Rihanna's a musician, for those who don't know. That's number one greatest living person in America today is Rihanna. Also found on this list, I won't read all 20 of them, but you can go find it for your own viewing pleasure. Also found on this list, Taylor Swift, Kanye West, and Timothy Chalamet, who's an actor and two more musicians. Those are the greatest living people in America today, according to the internet. And what is helpful for us about the internet is that the internet reflects our culture, right? So the internet's answer is going to be, what does our culture think greatness is today? And there's something that all of these people have in common. It's not that they're all musicians. Timothy Chalet is an actor. There's something they all have in common, and that's that all of them are influencers. All of them are influencers. So what does it mean to be great in the United States of America today? It means to be an influencer. And there's a variety of ways that you can be an influencer. It could be through your fame, your talent, your good looks, your humor, your style, whatever. All of these different areas come through influence. And that's what the internet is telling us is great today. Now when I asked you the question, who do you think is the greatest living person in America today? What metric of greatness did you use in your mind? When you thought of a, people, a couple people who are great, according to what standard were they great? Were they influencers? What defines greatness in your mind? And we can find the answer by who do we think is great? Today we're going to talk about God's vision for greatness, specifically Jesus' vision for greatness that he articulates in Mark. And one of the questions we should ask ourselves is, is our vision for greatness the same as God's vision for greatness? Do they align with one another? Are the people we think are great the people God says are great? Is it the influencers who are great? If you'd open with me to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, that's in the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, it's after Matthew. It's towards the uh, latter half of your Bible. Mark chapter 9.
Mark 9, starting in verse 33, says this. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? It's our question today. What were you discussing on the way? A little context, this they is the disciples and Jesus. They're going through the regions of Galilee. They come to Capernaum, and they've likely entered into the house of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. They've been in this house earlier in the Gospel of Mark in Capernaum. And so when they enter into the house, that's probably his mother-in-law's house. It says they come into the house and Jesus asks the disciple this question. He says, what were you discussing on the way? What were you discussing on the way? Now, as we've talked about in this series already, whenever Jesus asks a question, the reason he's asking the question probably isn't because he doesn't know the answer. Right? He's not asking because he's confused. He's like, well, what were you guys talking about on the way? No, he's asking for a very intentional teaching purpose. That whenever he asks a question, he's trying to make a point and to teach something. And so we should ask, what, what is he doing with this question? Well, certain ch- questions are more than questions. We all know this. Certain questions are more than questions. They're actually more like challenges. If you think to yourself, uh, or I think to myself, when I was growing up, my mom would frequently ask me this one question. She would say, hey, were you listening to me? Were you listening to me? Right? That's not just a question. That's a challenge. It's insinuating that I was not listening to her when she told me to take out the trash. Right? Or maybe you think about a principal asking a student, was that worth it? He's not really wondering if the student thinks it was worth it. It's a challenge to say, that was not worth it at all, right? Or we might even think back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sin and they take the fruit that they're not supposed to take and they're hiding. And God says to them, where are you? He says, where are you? He's not really wondering where they are. He's pointing out the fact that they're hiding from him. It's a challenge to the current circumstances that they are in. And that's what Jesus, I think, is doing here. His question is a little more than a question that's just curiosity. He's asking because he's, he's challenging. He's saying, what were you talking about on the way over here? And let's look at the disciples' answer. Verse 34, it says this. But they, the disciples, they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This may be the first time in the New Testament, we see the disciples quiet, right? Where they have nothing to say in response to Jesus. They're not hasty with their response here. Jesus asks this question and their response is silence. They just go quiet. And this is one of the few examples in the New Testament as well, where I think the disciples are up to something and they know holistically that it's not approved of by Christ. They're having this discussion and they don't try to defend it to Jesus and say, well, this is what we were talking about. No, they're silenced because they know this is a discussion Jesus would not want us to be having. So talking about who was the greatest, Matthew gives us a little bit of extra context to this particular passage. He says they're talking about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so it's not simply a discussion about who's better now, but like who is eternally the best? Who in the kingdom of heaven, once it comes back, what, who will be on the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven. That's what they're talking about. Who is the greatest? And we should ask the question, why are they talking about this? What is our context at hand? What brings up this discussion? Well, Mark chapter 9 is full of the disciples' shortcomings. 
It's full of the disciples' shortcomings. Jesus takes James, Peter, and John up onto the mountain, and he's transfigured before them. And as they're coming back down, they arrive back to the other disciples. And the disciples are in this heated argument with the religious leaders, and there's this big crowd. It's a huge scene. And when everyone sees Jesus, they all just flock to him. It says they're amazed, and they come up to him because they think he's going to come mop up their mess. And Jesus goes, what, what's going on here? And, and it's told to Jesus, well, there's this boy and he's got this demon and he's convulsing and your disciples couldn't cast it out. They couldn't do it. Here's Jesus' response to that. He says this, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And so right earlier in this chapter, we see the disciples, they fall short, right? And they receive kind of a a stern rebuke. He says, faithless generation, you are without faith. And at the end of this section, the disciples asked Jesus, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, by utter reliance on God. The only way this can be driven out is by utter reliance on God, which the disciples have failed to demonstrate. Just before our verses at hand, Jesus predicts his own death. He says, the son of man it's going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Verse 32 says, but they, the disciples, did not understand. They just didn't get it. And they were afraid to ask him. So earlier in this chapter, we see that the disciples show lack of faith and they're actually afraid of Jesus. Jesus doesn't seem like a scary or mean man in the least and yet they fear him. This is their response to him. So we see several times where the disciples, they just fall short. They, they, they don't live up to a, a good standard in Mark 9. And what happens when our confidence in ourselves is shaken? What happens when we feel insecure? Oftentimes we grasp at whatever we can to make ourselves feel above others. Right? Just to feel like, well, I, I need to feel better about myself somehow. And so the disciples turn to belittling one another and making themselves feel greater. You could probably even hear the words of Peter saying, well, you know what, guys? I know you couldn't cast out the demon, but Jesus, he, he talks to me privately all the time. Clearly, I am the greatest disciple. Or you might think about the Apostle John saying, I'm the, the disciple Jesus loves. I'll write about that in my own gospel. I'm the one he loves. Clearly, I am the greatest disciple disciple. Or you might imagine Judas's words where he would say, I am the greatest disciple. All the disciples are in this dispute about who is the greatest because ultimately they're latching onto something to make themselves feel better once again. What is Christ's response to this? And here's the real question is, what would we say to Jesus's question? As we're journeying along in our own faith, with Christ, as we're walking along and we're doing our devos in the morning, we're going to work and we're living with Jesus, if he were to ask us, what are you discussing? What are you talking about today? What are the things your heart is consumed with? What are the things that your mind is constantly thinking about? What are the things and the discussions you're having in your own life as you're journeying with me? Would the answer be one where we we react with silence? Or would we be able to express to him the things that are occupying our hearts? What would we do if Christ asked us, what are we discussing in our own lives? It's often easy to laugh at the disciples' discussion. We could cross our arms and shake our heads and say, tut, tut, those silly disciples, look at them arguing about who is the greatest. Because in some ways it feels like a childish argument, 
But I think if we actually slowed down and looked inward and around us at our culture today, we'd see that there are about a thousand different ways we're having this same discussion today, all around us, all the time. One of the immediate examples that comes to my mind of how we oftentimes make ourselves look great is through social media. I guess as most of us have phones in our pockets. And that social media is actually a platform for self-advertisement. It's all about, look at me. And I'm not saying social media is always bad. There are really good reasons to have it, and there can be many good motivations for posting something. But oftentimes, I think if we really pulled apart our motivations for what we're posting, we might ask the question, am I posting this just to make myself look great in comparison to my neighbors? Am I posting this to make myself look funny or like a great cook or like I have friends or so many likes and followers and supports? Why am I posting this? This is one area where we're often prone to compare ourselves to others and to make ourselves look good and others look less. Perhaps if it's not social media for us, it might be in our culture today, which is really well accomplished, it might be a sense of success and self-accomplishment in any area of our lives. We might think about this. I might not love my job, but at least I'm in a higher position than he is. I might, I might not love what I do, but at least I'm not like her. We might think about, my kids aren't perfect. My family's got its issues, but man, we are more put together than them. Like our, our family is better than they are. Or I might, as a student, think, well, I, I might have gotten a B on this paper, but at least I didn't get a C like her. Like, look at my grades. Or perhaps I, I might struggle with my own anger, but think of how I've made something of myself. Think about how hard I've worked and I've built my own business. There are many ways we often compare ourselves to others to make ourselves look good and others look less. And I think it's even made its way into the church oftentimes. Where we might say, I know I'm a sinner, but my sin's not as weird as his. Or my sin isn't as nasty as hers. I may not read my Bible every day, but I do it more than they do. Or perhaps even, you know what? Our church isn't perfect, but it's better than that church. Right? So many ways where we often are prone to compare ourselves and our own insecurities about who we are. We can feel superior to our, about ourselves and others can feel lesser than. And this is what the disciples have turned to here. They're saying, we, we might have had these shortcomings, but anything to make ourselves feel better than one another. And we should ask the question, why are we prone to compare ourselves? Why are we prone to compare ourselves? Why is this where we turn in our insecurity? Oftentimes, the answer can be that our definition of greatness is faulty. Our definition of greatness is faulty. If we think about uh, the question we asked at the beginning, who is great? Is it according to the metrics of comparison to other people? Or is it uh, according to Christ's metrics for greatness? You see, the disciples' definition of greatness is attention and worth ascribed to them by one another. That's their definition of greatness. Is If I look great in the eyes of man, then I'm great. That's what it means to be great. But Christ says to them, what were you discussing on the way? And he says the same thing to us. Are we comparing one another? Is this what we're doing as we're walking along? But what is true greatness? What is true greatness? If it's not this metric, what does it mean to be truly great? Let's continue in our passage and look at what Christ says true greatness actually is. Verse 35. 
And as he, Jesus, sat down, he called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. I love that the first response Christ has to this uh, vain discussion amongst the disciples isn't to yell at them. It's not to get angry at them and to rebuke them harshly and say, how dare you talk about this? He just goes and sits down. He goes, he sits down, he says, come come here. Because he recognizes the value of this moment as a teaching moment. Saying to the disciples, if you want to be great, here's how you do it. Here's the first thing we should recognize about this passage is that Jesus does not condemn the disciples for wanting to be great. That's not the issue at hand. He doesn't say, you should never desire greatness. Only I am great or only God is great. That's not what he says. He says, if anyone would be first, if anyone would be great, here's how you do it. The desire for greatness isn't the problem here. All of us desire to be great in some way. And what is the desire for greatness? Ultimately, I think it's the desire to be recognized as valuable or as worthy. It's, recognize, it's the desire to have our worth recognized and, and to uh, be attributed with the things that we are worthy. That's the desire for greatness is to be recognized ultimately. This is not something that has to be trained into us. We're all born with this desire to be recognized by others. And if you think immediately off the top of your head about what it looks like when your son or kid kicks the soccer ball into the goal during the game in his head, it swivels where? To his parents. Because right? he wants to make sure that they saw him shoot the goal because that's a desire for being recognized as valuable or as worthy. Or you think about your daughter brings home her art project and she wants it put up on the wall. Why? so it can be recognized by those who walk in as worthy and valuable. It's a human desire to be recognized. And we don't outgrow it as we continue to age and mature, but instead we recognize now that this is the human desire ultimately to be known and accepted. It's that we would be seen and then received by others. So Christ doesn't say to them, stop it. Stop desiring greatness. Don't do it. He says, Desire greatness in the right way. Do it in the right way. What is the right way to greatness prescribed by Jesus? He says this. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. How do we become great? How do we become first? Become last. That's Jesus' advice for greatness. And we might ask the question, how does that Work. That's like saying, if you want to be tall, just be short. It doesn't make any sense. It's a paradox. But what's the point Christ is making? He's saying, well, if you want to be great in the eyes of the world, the true vision of greatness might never ever get that. This is not the vision for greatness that the influencers today are following. They're not trying to put themselves last and others first. What are they doing? They're trying to put themselves first and, and make themselves above others. And so if our definition for greatness is the world's definition for greatness, we might not ever actually achieve true greatness by following the words of Christ. We might not ever be recognized by the world and by the culture as great if we follow the words of Jesus here. But is that what matters? Is that really what matters to be truly great in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of God? The disciples' way of greatness and their goal of greatness was faulty, as ours often might be. Their way, their means to, uh, to greatness and their way of greatness was what? Comparison. It was 
putting others down to put themselves up. Their goal was greatness in the eyes of each other, in the eyes of the world. I want to be sitting on the throne in the kingdom of God. I want everyone to look at me and how great I am. That's their goal. So their way to greatness and their goal of greatness were both faulty. Christ proposes a different way and a different goal. His way of greatness, the way to achieve greatness, is what? Through serving others. It's not through elevating yourself and putting others down. It's actually through elevating others so that you might be last. And his goal is not greatness in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God, in the eyes of Christ. We need both this goal and this way because if we only have the way, we might actually still have the goal of getting others' approval. We might actually serve each other and put ourselves last so that others would recognize us as humble or as servant-hearted, right? If we don't have the right goal in mind of the greatness of, of the approval of God, we might often try to achieve human approval through serving others. So this is a call into our own vision of greatness. What does it really mean to be great? Jesus is saying, well, it's through serving others and it's through getting the approval and recognition of God not of man. We can realize how radical this would have been for the disciples. In the Greco-Roman world, who were the great ones? It was not the servants. When they hear the word servant here, they don't primarily think of like an act of service in the way we do today. They would likely think of real people whose real jobs were being servants. They would think of the household servants or of the servants in the palace. And so when they hear from Jesus saying, well, to be great is to be a servant, what they're hearing is, well, I thought the great people were the people who were served. I thought it was the master of the house, not the servants of the house. Jesus is saying, no, greatness is achieved through being like servants. It's through being servants to those around us. So this is a radical rewiring of the entire culture around the disciples. Finally, Christ gives us an illustration for how this greatness actually looks. How does it look to achieve this vision of greatness in the world around them? And he does it through an object lesson, actually, as he often does in his teachings as well. It says this in verse 36. And he, Jesus, he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. We're we're remembering that we're in the house of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. This is probably a child that everyone knew who was there. And Jesus says, let's slow down. Do you want to know what true greatness is? It's this. And he takes a child into his arms. It says, whoever receives a child in my name, this is greatness. This is what it means to be first. It's really a profound object lesson. You can imagine the disciples in their silence watching Jesus do this. And what is he really saying with this child? Is he saying, you know what greatness is? It's just serving children. No, I think he is saying that greatness is found in serving children, literal children. But I think he's saying more than that as well. That the the child points to a particular type of people as an object lesson. So who does this child point to? What kind of characteristics does this child point to? Well, the first we might realize is that the child is vulnerable. The child is vulnerable. Children are, uh, they need others to defend them both from the world intellectually and physically. If we think about children aren't as strong as adults and so they need 
uh, adults to come around them and protect them from danger and from other things. And in the same way, they're also more trusting than adults are. And so they're easily deceived, they're easily mistaught things, and they'll believe what's told to them. And so in a real sense, the child is vulnerable. The child is vulnerable. And therefore, when we're serving children, we're serving the vulnerable. Those in our neighborhoods who are susceptible to harm or to false teaching, those who need the guidance and protection of those around them who are stronger. Child is not only vulnerable, but it's also in need or dependent on others. If you think about the last time your child cooked a meal for you who is under the age of 11, I'm guessing that you're going to have to search for a minute, right? Or maybe never, because children are in need. They're in need of being fed. They must be provided for by their parents, by their grandparents, by their family. So what it means to be a child is that the parents don't expect that the child brings all of the things to the table, but they actually serve and care for their children because that's what children need as they're growing up. Lastly, a child does not pay you back. A child does not pay you back. Mothers in this room know that this is true. All, right, all the servant hours you've put in to caring for your children, my guess is that there hasn't been a lot of payback. Definitely not in terms of finances, but even more than that, oftentimes even in thanks. In a lot of ways, it's often not for an accolade or reward to serve children. There is no ultimate payback in the moment. So when we look at this list, who is Christ actually talking about? He's talking about the vulnerable. He's talking about those who are in need and those who can't pay you back. This is who we serve. This is what it looks like to be great is by serving these groups of people. But he doesn't just say serve them. He says whoever receives one such child in my name. What does it mean to receive? We don't use that word in this context very frequently. Well, one uh, commentator says this. He says, to welcome or to receive people would be to extend to them the honor of hospitality, to regard them as guests. But one would only welcome a social equal or one whose honor was above one's own. Children's whose, children whose place of social residence was defined at the bottom of the ladder of esteem might be called upon to perform acts of hospitality, an example being washing feet of guests, but normally would not themselves be the recipients of honorable behavior. Jesus thus turns the social pyramid upside down, undermining the very conventions that led the disciples to deliberate over relative greatness within the company of the disciples. Who were children in the Greco-Roman world? They were not the recipients of service, but they were the servants. They were the ones who, who when a guest came into the home, they'd say, hey, honey, can you set the table for our guest? Can you wash his feet? Can you make sure he feels welcomed and served? That was what children were called upon. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Your job is to serve children. It's to serve those who are treated as servants in your society today. It's to serve those who don't bring your social status up, but might even bring it down. And to welcome, by this commentator's admittance, is to receive in the most whole way into your life. So we might think of a hospitable reception of another individual. This is like the greatest act of sacrificial service you could do in the Greco-Roman world. To receive one was to welcome someone, to, to clothe them, to give them a bed to sleep in, to give them a meal, to honor them at the dinner table, to wash their feet. That's what it meant to receive someone. So Jesus is saying to welcome a child is to serve a child in every way possible. That's what it means. He says this is how true greatness is achieved. 
I bet most of us in this room are asking, well, how do we actually do that? What does that practically look like in our lives to really carry out Jesus' commands here? Many of our minds, I'm guessing, go to the big ministries like homeless ministries or refugee ministries when we think about these categories of people, which those ministries are amazing ways to serve the vulnerable, the in need, and those who can't pay us back. And if you feel called to be in one of those, I would highly encourage it as a means to doing this. But more than that, I think there's other ways every single day where we can carry out these commands of Christ. Servanthood, we might define this way. It's a subtle, consistent lifestyle of putting others first in whatever ways we can. It's subtle, it's consistent, and it's in whatever ways we can. That means whatever context we find ourselves in, it's asking how can we put others first and be last in that context. Two weekends ago, we had our winter weekend trip for middle school, and Saturday morning I was in the restroom and a leader came up to me and he said, hey, Jake, I just wanted to let you know um, the air mattress you brought with us, it had a hole in it last night, and so we were one bed short in our cabin. And I was like, oh, no, that's, that's a bummer. How, how did you guys work that out? He said, well, one of the eighth grade leaders brought his own mattress over to our cabin and donated it to that student so that he could sleep on it. And I said, well, how did, how did he sleep? He said, oh, he slept on the bed frame. And that was one way where a leader decided to put a student first and himself be last. He said, I'll I'll take an uncomfortable night of sleep so that this student can sleep well. It wasn't a flashy or loud act, but it was an act of subtle, consistent service, asking how can I put others first and myself last? So I ask you the question, what does it mean for you today? What does it mean for you and your context to serve the vulnerable, the in need, and those who can't pay us back? It might mean if you're married that if your spouse is sick, you patiently and compassionately tend to their needs while you receive little thanks in return. That might be what it means to be a servant today. Or perhaps as a sibling, it might mean asking the question, how can I serve my younger siblings? How can I welcome them? How can I give them my life as hospitality? It may mean that as a mother, you tend to the needs of your children faithfully and consistently, or as a father, that you step in and you instruct and love your kids in the ways that you're called to. That could be servanthood today, is saying, how can I love and be there for my children and what they need? As a granddaughter, perhaps it means stepping in to care for your aging parents and their needs. Or perhaps as a grandfather, it means looking for ways to support your kids in their new role of parenthood. It says, how can I love and care for my kids as they are parents now? In our place of work, it might mean, where can I especially look for those who are vulnerable here? Who are my coworkers? Who are my uh, customers who could use help, who are in need, who I can step in and especially give them attention and care? If we open our eyes to those three characteristics, we will see that there are people in need all around us all around us in the city of Boulder. There are those who are in need, those who can't pay us back, and those who we can put first while ourselves being last. Jesus actually gives us the results of this kind of lifestyle. He says this in verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. He says, this is the answer. If you want to receive me, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, this is how you do it. You serve those around you who are in need. 
Why? Why is this so integral to Christ's kingdom? Because when we serve others in these ways, we show ourselves to be a part of the true one who was the ultimate servant. We show that when we serve others in these ways, Christ himself as the ultimate service is in us. You see, Christ was the ultimate servant. He was the ultimate welcomer of those who were in need of the vulnerable. If you think back to his earthly ministry, who were the people he spent his time with? Not the wealthy, but the lepers. Not those who would raise his social status, but the tax collectors. Those are the ones he came to love and to welcome and to receive into his home. His greatness wasn't greatness like the influencer's greatness. His greatness wasn't loud or flashy or beautiful. Instead, he didn't come into a palace, but a manger. He wasn't born into riches, but into poverty. He was born into human weakness and frailty. He left heaven to be in the dirt. Christ's life was defined by being last and servant of all. He said of himself, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the ultimate place we see Jesus being a servant, is the cross itself, him giving his life. You see, we did not raise him up on a throne at the end of his life and say, great job, Jesus, but instead we raised him up on a cross. We didn't give him a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. The cross is the place where Jesus receives little children. You might imagine him taking that child in his arms in front of the disciples. On the cross, that is where he welcomed those who were in need of forgiveness. It's where he welcomed those who were vulnerable to Satan and to the wrath of God. It's where he welcomed those who could pay him nothing back. It's where he welcomed us. So when we think of Christ ultimately going to the cross in servanthood to us and in welcoming of us, we can recognize that we don't need to compare ourselves to others to feel great. We don't need it because Jesus has already fully recognized and accepted us in our value. He has received us into his kingdom and therefore we can be free to serve the needy and vulnerable as he did and become truly great. I'm going to pray for us. Father, would we be great like you? Pray for anyone in this room who is attempting to be great in the eyes of the world or who doesn't feel the value of being received and embraced by you. Lord, would we not be lost in the schemes of the world and in what it tells us is greatness? Would would that not deceive us? Would that not lead us and guide our thinking? But would we, Lord, constantly be re-envisioning what it means to be great through the eyes of Christ. That we ourselves would be found great, not in the eyes of man, but in the eyes of God. We pray for this greatness to be in our hearts and our lives this week. It's in your name we pray, amen.